It sounds shocking to the ears of people who think that Christians are all about blind faith. That we just trust things despite the lack of evidence, we just believe it anyway. And here we have four really good reasons for believing that the Bible is God's Word. Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for the program. It's not Jeremiah making it up. Who's declaring this? Thus says the Lord. This is God speaking through Jeremiah. The Old Testament character Jeremiah was only young when he became a prophet. Most of his prophecies were fulfilled in his lifetime. Jeremiah courageously stood for God and against the tide of rebellion. He knew that the rise and fall of nations is decreed by God. He also knew that this same God responds to the heart of man. This is where we see Jeremiah, who's no longer the shy, timid, 12, 13-year-old boy, quivering on the streets of Jerusalem, trying to muster up the gumption to prophesy what God has commanded him to do. It's a seasoned veteran. It's a man who's now resolute. It's a man who knows the God whom he serves. God shaped Jeremiah over time for him to be the prophet he was. Tonight, Dr. Corbett is in Jeremiah chapter 50, Proclaim and Conceal It Not. He starts off, as we've seen, being called Jeremiah the weeping prophet because he wasn't just someone who wanted to deliver a word. And, and I tell you, as a preacher, this is a real challenge to me because sometimes I think, I wonder if it's easier for preachers to think that our job is just to preach at you. God forbid that that's how we transact God's word. Something to be preached at, something to be entertained with, something to be thought of as a, a part of the service and that's about all the Word of God is. And it's my heart today that I'm not just to preach the Word of God. I actually want to pastor you. I actually want to shape your life. I want to take the Word of God and hide behind it and have you see that this is something that if we get this, if we get what God is saying in His Word, it can help us to become who He wants us to be. So this morning, I'm not interested in impressing you. I'm not interested in your, uh, as much as I, I appreciate it, but I'm, I'm really not after your encouragement. I just want to be faithful to what I see in God's Word and to be able to share God's Word in an appropriate way. So this section introduces the longest prophecy to any nation outside of Jerusalem. And we've just seen in this section that as we track through the history of Jeremiah, we see that Jeremiah was prophesying from a very young age that this would happen to Jerusalem and its people unless they repented. And he wasn't giving them any new information. He was actually simply reinforcing what we already read in Deuteronomy, for example, where God had already said this is what he would do. In Leviticus 26, 27, he's already, he already warned that this would happen. So, and, and that's actually the nature of true prophecy. True prophecy is not new in the sense that it's nearly always a reminder. Huh. 
And so we see that Jeremiah has been vindicated and we, we find him now in Egypt against his will. He told them not to go. They went anyway. And as they arrive there, he's now turning his attention to the nations because in a few weeks, maybe a few months, they will be dead and so will he. As the Babylonians will come in and wipe out Egypt. The king at the time, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Judah, was pinning his hopes on Egypt being their hope. And they, his advisors told him it can't be because Babylon is now becoming the world power. And when Jeremiah started prophesying these things, Babylon was not the world power. Not at all. Egypt was. And so God used Babylon for his purposes. Now, as we look at this, I'm, I'm mindful that, you know, we approach God's word and there's four really good reasons why we know God's word is actually the divinely inspired word of God. And we're actually going to, it's, it's kind of in my background assumption that you know this, but I, I, I do want to remind you of it because one of the four reasons we're about to really bring home right now. And so there are the four really good reasons, and you might want to just make a mental note of this. If someone says to you, why do you believe in God or why do you believe God's word? Can I just encourage you to use the expression good reasons? Whenever someone asks you, why do you believe in God or why do you believe the Bible is God's word? In other words, to be able to say, I have good reasons for believing in God. It sounds shocking to the ears of people who think that Christians are all about blind faith. That we just trust things despite the lack of evidence, we just believe it anyway. And here we have four really good reasons for believing that the Bible is God's word. Here's the first one. They're not in any particular order. But the first one is that the contents of the Bible are scientifically and historically verifiable. Now I know that there's a, an, a, and if this offends you and you're upset by what I say, please, please, please just take a number and get in line. Um, because what I'm about to say is that, that I actually believe that there is no conflict between what the record of science says and the record of scripture reveals. I, I actually. Uh, last week I was invited in again to speak at Launceston College and they were stunned to hear me say that. that, that this classroom of year 11 and 12s and, and, and they, they were stunned. They actually pressed me on this. I said, do, do you believe what science tells us about the age of the universe and all that? I said, yeah, I do. I, I don't see anything in scripture that contradicts that at all. And so because of that, I actually am convinced that the record of science and the record of scripture tell the same story from different perspectives. It's verifiable scientifically. It's also verifiable historically. So we've got those kind of hard sciences that we can verify the contents of scripture. When it talks about the characters in the Bible, for a long time people thought King David was actually a myth. And now archaeologists are finding 
pottery dating around to that era that has references to him inscribed on it and things like that. So it's verifiable. The second reason I believe the Bible is divinely inspired... Oh, and by the way, that first point, the Koran fails that first test. It's not coherent scientifically. It's, it's historical narratives cannot be confirmed. In fact, they can be contradicted. The second point ties in with that in that the contents of the Bible are consistent and without contradiction. And many people think that they have raised apparent contradictions like, was it two demoniacs that Jesus healed or was it one? Because one account says there were two, the other account says there were one. Well, I can guarantee you this, if there were two, there was definitely one. You know, you could say two people knocked at my door and someone else could say about the same event, one person knocked at my door. I guarantee you, if there was two, there was definitely one. So these things aren't contradictions, but they are perspectives. In fact, if everything like that, as I heard uh, Jay Warner Wallace say, if everything lined up without those little variations, you would be very suspicious as a detective whether we're actually dealing with the truth. So scripture is consistent and without contradiction. Thirdly, this is a big one. I actually think it's a really big one. Is that the claims of Scripture can be individually experienced and tested by experience. So when the Bible actually talks about, cast all your cares on him. I love this one. 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. You know how many times I've proved that to be true? I'm not sure how many times an hour, but it's a lot. Because there are times in life when I just have to go, God, this is more than I can bear right now. I've just got to give you this because I can't solve it. I can't deal with it. And the peace of God. You experience the peace of God. So you can do that with the claims that it makes. And here's the fourth one. And this is the segue into what we're about to look at in this section of Jeremiah. It's time relative prophecies. That is, when the Bible says at such and such a time or within such and such a time, this will happen, we can demonstrate that in every instance that has happened. So we can look at, for example, the prophecies of Isaiah in Isaiah at the end of chapter 52 and all of Isaiah 53. For centuries up until the mid-20th century, those prophecies of Isaiah were considered to have been written 200 to 300 AD, not 750 BC. 1,000 year difference. And the reason people rejected, particularly Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, as having been written 750 BC, is because if you read it, it is uncanny in the detail it gives about the birth, the life, the ministry, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, there's some YouTube clips of people going up to members of the Jewish community and reading out, not telling them they're reading out Isaiah 52, 53, reading it, just reading it and saying, who am I talking about? And whether it's clever editing or not, but in, in the particular YouTube clip that I've seen, uh, 
I think, which Aaron, I think you sent me a link to. It, it says, every one of them say, you're talking about Jesus Christ. What's your point? And he says, well, the point is this was written by Isaiah the prophet, 750 BC. And he says, oh, well, then it's not Jesus Christ. It's got to be something else. And that's the problem. And the problem was resolved in 1948. Anyone know what happened around 1948-49? The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, there were copies of, the, of this prophecy written on leather called vellum, put into earthenware jars and sealed with um, asphalt. So it was, they were airtight. And they were opened and they were examined. And, and here's the point. These copies may not have been written in 750 BC. That doesn't matter. Even if they were only written 300 BC because they were passed down copies from 750 BC. The point is, it was written hundreds of years before the event. And we can demonstrate that what, we, what is claimed by Isaiah the prophet was actually Bible prophecy, not history dressed up to sound like prophecy. And there's 40 details in Isaiah 52 and 53 that foretold of the the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amazing. That's just one of them. The book of Jeremiah is filled with references, prophetic references to Jesus. For example, it talks about the children being slaughtered at the, by, uh, prophesies that they would be slaughtered at the time of Christ's birth. I mean, we read in the Gospels that Herod did that in the hope that he would kill the Messiah. And Jeremiah prophesied all this. Jeremiah prophesied the coming of the new covenant. He prophesied the coming of the Holy Spirit to transform hearts. And here in this passage, I want you to see, and as we're looking at this section, which is proclaim and conceal it not, this is where, this is where we see Jeremiah who's no longer the shy, timid, 12, 13-year-old boy quivering on the streets of Jerusalem, trying to muster up the gumption to prophesy what God has commanded him to do. And then running to God, we see in chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, saying to God, I quit, I don't want to do this. It's not that Jeremiah anymore. It's a seasoned veteran. It's a man who's now resolute. It's a man who knows the God whom he serves. And we have Jeremiah declaring these prophecies. Fulfilled prophecy is one of the four ways that we know that this is divinely inspired. And as we look at the book of Jeremiah, it screams God's divine authorship. If you have any doubt at all about whether there is a God, reading through the book of Jeremiah should cause you to have all of those doubts evaporate. This is uncanny. It's uncanny from two angles. One, what he said and the fact that he said it before it happened and it happened. And he did it time and time and time and time again. That's uncanny. Secondly, what God did in Jeremiah. Because if you knew that you were making up a lie, you knew that, you would scarcely face your death with much confidence if you could get out of it by simply admitting that you'd lied. 
And we see this in the the disciples, the 11 remaining disciples, plus the Apostle Paul and others. When challenged at the point of death to recant their stories, none of them did. None of them did. That says something. It's just a part of the overall evidence that we're dealing with something divine. So it's for these reasons that I think the book of Jeremiah, 52 chapters of it, stands out as powerful proof of the Bible's divine authorship. All right. So we come to this point, chapter 50, and we have just been on the heels where from chapters 46 through to chapter, the end of chapter 49, he's been turning his attention to the surrounding nations. And this, is, this fulfills exactly what God told him in chapter 1, that he would be someone who would be a prophet. And you've got to think, this kid was 12 when God called him. And he says, I'll call, I've called you to be a prophet to the nations. And, and as we've seen, Jeremiah was prophesying in a way that as he prophesied, he, he says at one point, my, my, my eyes were like waterfalls of tears. And again, he wasn't just someone trying to impress people or, oh, that was really good prophecy today, Jeremiah, that was really good. He actually was trying to move people. He was trying to move people back to repentance, to move them back to love God, first love with all their hearts. And because they wouldn't be moved, his heart was broken. And I think that's really the essence of preaching, I hope, that you can see I'm not just up here trying to fill in a bit of a gap and impress you with a little bit of entertaining oratory. I'm actually trying to move you closer to God. And, and this is what we see in Jeremiah's life. And now we come to this point. And as I mentioned, of all the prophecies that he gives, even to Edom and, and Damascus and all these other uh, nations surrounding them, what we're about to read from this point on is the longest prophecy he gave outside of his prophecies to the people of Jerusalem. And what we need to understand is this. Often when the world is zigging, God begins to zag. I can't give you a Bible verse for it, but not with those words at least I can't. But I think of Romans 12 when it says, don't be conformed to the world. The world wants to go this way when God wants us to go this way. And here's the point. These prophecies that Jeremiah is about to give now, he was getting these early on in his ministry. He was getting these early on and he's just kept them and now he releases them. And so this is a compilation of some of the things that he's given us a glimpse into. He's already mentioned some of them in the early or the mid part of the book of Jeremiah, chapter 20, uh, 24, 25 and so. And so here we are now where he's reminding us of some of the things he's already said. We're dealing with someone who is, and this is the point, he's compiling and releasing these prophecies about Babylon. When Babylon was at the zenith, the height of its power. In other words, everyone's going, boy, the kingdom of Babylon's just going to take off. These guys are going to conquer the world. And Jeremiah goes, no, they won't. Their end is near. They will fall like that. God will deal with them. Yes, he's allowing them to be used, 
by him for his purpose and for his glory. But they are accountable to him as well. This is really worth remembering when things go wrong in your life and life seems unfair. (laughs) Keep doing the right thing. And those who aren't doing the right thing, God knows it. He knows it. And what we're about to see here is that here's Babylon, the zenith of its power. And Jeremiah says it won't last. It won't last. And as we see, as we unfold this, you'll see, and if you, if you have read through the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 6, it says in one night, in one night, the Babylonian Empire was overthrown by the Medo-Persian Empire. Unbelievable. So Jeremiah prophesied it. He will deliver this word and then within a relatively short time, he will be dead at the hands of the Babylonians. The word that the Lord spoke concerning Babylon, concerning the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. Declare among the nations and proclaim. Set up a banner and proclaim. Conceal it not and say, Babylon is taken. Bel, the name of the Babylonian god, is put to shame. Merodach is dismayed, another Babylonian god. Her images are put to shame. Her idols are dismayed. Jeremiah is giving this, as I've said, at the zenith, at the pinnacle, at the peak of Babylon's power. And he prophesies their demise. And he says, don't just write, I'm not just writing this and you can open it when I'm dead. I want this proclaimed among the nations. Why? Because it's not Jeremiah making it up. Who's declaring this? Thus says the Lord. This is God speaking through Jeremiah. This is God saying, I don't care what your circumstances look like. I don't care if it looks like all hope is gone. I don't care if it looks like all is lost. And as we read through Daniel, we see that God was doing something in Nebuchadnezzar that ultimately caused him to surrender to the God of Israel. God was doing something in these people's lives. And this is what we can see as we join these dots together. We can see no nation, no nation is responsible for its rise or even its fall. God raises up nations and he puts nations down and if he does that for nations i can guarantee you he does it with people god decrees nations that should rise and nations that should fall he does it with nations and think here's jeremiah in egypt They haven't listened to him. He's an unsuccessful prophet because he didn't turn Israel back to him. And here he is. He's not in the holy city. Can God even see him? And yet he's hearing from God clearly. And God is telling him that he sees 
the ruler of Babylon. He sees what's going on in the world, proclaims to the nations, because I'm the God of all flesh. I see all people. And this is, strangely, a tremendous comfort. Because there are times when it may not feel like God sees you or even knows you exist. But based on what we read in Jeremiah, he absolutely does. And not only this, he loves you. And I think even more precious is he hears you. The number of people I've spoken to who've been in difficult situations who have said in the midst of this situation, I just wanted to be heard. I guess, what is it that's brought Jeremiah to this point? He's come to know God. God always does good. How could Jeremiah think that seeing his beloved city destroyed in ruins? Because as we hear the temple should be rebuilt and it should be rebuilt in the hearts of men. That's the new covenant that he prophesied about. And as I think about what it takes to bring a young man or a young woman to that place of surrender where they know that God is good, God is always good, he, he is the, the most beautiful, magnificent being in the universe, worthy of our full devotion, I wonder what does it take to bring a man or a woman to that point and are there any prepared today for God to do that in them? Because God knows we need a church of young men, young women who can stand up and fearlessly proclaim the word of the Lord to a generation that is resistant and hard. And here's my question to you now. What could God do with your surrendered heart? Younger person, older person, boy, girl, what could he do? While I'm speaking to you, I'm speaking to me because I think, man, God, you did this in Jeremiah. He went through so much that ordinarily people go through and they, they don't want anything to do with you. But Jeremiah came to love you and trust you. And in the midst of his adversity, in the midst of everything that went wrong, he came to see that you're a good God. Oh, God, I want that to be in my heart. I want that to be in our church. I want us to be a church that weeps as we speak. I want us to be a church, Father, that feels the brokenness, the damage, the hurt, the loss, the confusion that people are inflicted with. Help us to be the kind of church that does hear well, that cares well, that listens well, reaches out. And perhaps you're here today and you feel that you're broken, you're damaged. You feel no one understands you. You feel that you're all alone. But can I tell you, there is a God in heaven. He was there when you were conceived. He saw you in your mother's womb. He saw you when you were born. He saw you when you were first hurt. He heard your first word. He's been with you all the way. He knows the very thing that's in your heart right now. And he loves you more than anyone in the universe. And he's beckoning you, come to me. Come to me. You may think that life has been so unfair to you. You may think that God has been unfair to you. You may think your parents have been unfair to you. You may think that people are unfair to you. But can I tell you, God has ordered and decreed for you to have gone through what you've gone through in order for you to be here today and for you in this moment to say, God, I stop running. I open my clenched fist and I give you my open palm. I surrender to you now and I pray, have your way in my life. I want to know you. 
I want to love you. I want to serve you. And perhaps you feel like there's too much between you and God for him to really do that. Will you ask him to forgive you right now? You are one prayer away, not a million miles away, one prayer away. Perhaps for some of you, you may feel two or three steps away, but you're not. You're one step, one prayer away. Young lady, I'm talking to you. Open your fist up and raise an open palm to God and surrender right now. Young man, more concerned about staff and things and others than you are about God's purpose in your life. Open your palms to God and ask him to have his way in your life. And Father, as you do, as you save those who feel unworthy, as you redeem those who feel like they have messed up, that Father, who knows what this state could look like in the weeks and the months and the years to come with a generation of young people prepared to be holy, faith-filled, fearless servants of Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The God who decrees the rise and fall of nations knows you, loves you, sees you, hears you. Are you going to trust God by surrendering your heart? More from Dr. Corbett next week. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, Proclaim and Conceal It Not, are available via the website findingtruthmatters.org or by contacting us at Lagana Media. PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. For updates and special offers, please visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters. Music